Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Those of us who begin reading the New Testament become aware fairly quickly that there's a whole lot we don't know about the setting of the New Testament. Uh, Who are the New Testament authors writing to? What are the circumstances that occasion the writing? Sometimes it seems obvious, other times it's less clear. And uh, we also wonder about the larger uh, setting of the New Testament. What were the attitudes of uh, the New Testament writers to uh, the Roman Empire? Uh, What were their attitudes towards the Jewish uh, leadership and authorities? How did they understand the work of Jesus in their own immediate setting? And, of course, we try to get behind the eyes of the uh, first audience, which is very important. But we also know that the New Testament is meant to be read by us today and applied by us today. So it's not just enough to get behind the eyes of that first audience. One man who's done more, I think, than anybody else in my generation to help us understand uh, not only the setting of the uh, New Testament, its content, but also its application in our own generation is Dr. N.T. Wright. He is presently Senior Research Fellow at Wycliffe Hall, Oxford. He's the author of more than 80 books and hundreds of articles. And most recently, he's contributed, along with uh, co-author Michael Byrd, The New Testament in Its World. It's an introduction to the history, literature, and theology of the first Christians. And Dr. Wright, it's a pleasure to have you back with me again. Thank you. Thank you. Good to talk to you again. Let's uh, talk about the very title of the book, The New Testament in Its World. Um, The world of the New Testament certainly is the Roman world, it's the Jewish world, and then, of course, we're in the 21st century world. Talk to me about world and its importance for this book. Well, um, I think by world here we mean uh, kind of three overlapping cultural worlds. The world of the first century Jews, which is uh, obviously where Jesus himself was and where all the earliest followers of Jesus were uh, living in the Jewish world, whether in the Middle East or out in the diaspora in Turkey or Egypt or or, or Greece or wherever. But then secondly, and I've already mentioned it, the world of Greece, which is the world of philosophy, of ideas, of culture, um, which had spread itself right across what we call the Middle East 300 years before the time of Jesus, so that um, Greek is everybody's second language at the time. Um, You know, just like many parts of the world today, um, English is everybody's second language. So Greek was like that in the first century. and there were many ideas and discussions which are going around about the big issues, about God and the world, about what it means to be human and so on, which many um, intelligent, thoughtful people were, were giving voice to. And the early Christians, when they were saying what they wanted to say, that was part of their audience. That was part of who they were addressing. But then thirdly, the Roman world. And though Rome, of course, has uh, ideas, etc., it's particularly a world of empire, of power, of military power, of a political system which was so strong that it basically ran a large portion of the known world for hundreds of years. Um, it was a very robust system. And again, anyone talking about God becoming king, about the kingdom of God, about Jesus as king and Lord and Lord of the world, is inevitably going to bump their nose pretty soon up against the Roman world, the Roman way of doing power, if you like. And uh, it's very interesting because, of course, um, the question of the Jewish world, a question of, of a monotheistic world, one God who has made the world and loves the world, 
the question of the Greek world with its ideas and culture, and then the question of power. These questions are very much with us still. Greece and Rome and the Middle East may not play exactly the same role as they did in the first century, but um, there is a kind of a, an obvious relevance of all of this to the, first, to the 21st century. But in order to get at it, we really need to understand what was going on in those worlds at the time. So there we are. The key, the key proclamation, Jesus is Lord, uh, the idea that Jesus uh, is identified with proclaiming the kingdom of God, inaugurating the kingdom of God, how does that bump up against uh, the Roman world? Well, there are many people today who would say that if you take, say, Mark's Gospel, which is the shortest and in some ways the easiest, not necessarily, but uh, uh, you have Mark's portrayal of Jesus as the King of the Jews in stark contrast to the Roman Empire. Um, the, 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 there are several points in the narrative which seem to, especially when Jesus comes into Jerusalem and then is tried by Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, and it's almost as though the soldiers are mocking Jesus, as though he wants to be some kind of a Caesar. And then the centurion at the foot of the cross says, actually, this man was the son of God. Yeah. And we know from the coins and so on of the time that the phrase son of God was in regular use as an epithet for Caesar himself. So all the way through, though the, the Jewish meaning is paramount, um, the, the implication all the way through is that if this is the king of the Jews, then um, Caesar has to take some demotion. He's got to be brought down a peg or two at the very least, quite possibly more. And then when we get to Paul, it's quite clear in passages like Philippians chapter 2, when he says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess Jesus Christ is Lord. But he's saying Jesus is Lord, and then in square brackets, as it, and by the way, that means that Caesar is not Lord, because Lord is a regular Caesar title as well. Mm -hmm. So those are two very obvious ways in which um, to read the New Testament with your eyes open to the first century makes you realize um, this is pretty much in your face, actually. The, the, the world of uh, Second Temple Judaism, first century Palestinian Judaism, is uh, a world with lots of debate and argument going on. Uh, to what degree would the, your average uh, uh, first century uh, Jew on the street understand that the kingdom of God was in fact uh, a challenge to the entire Roman world, the Roman Empire, uh, and to what degree did he see it as a you know a matter of personal devotion, and he should wait to uh, you know until the his death and hopefully enter in the afterlife some kind of what we would call heaven. Oh. Yeah, well, um, the, the many Jews did discuss different options about what they might believe about the afterlife, but the phrase kingdom of God was never a phrase about what we call the afterlife. That was always, uh, as Jesus taught his followers to pray, thy kingdom come on earth as in heaven. Mm -hmm. It's assumed that God is already king in heaven, but the whole point of the Lord's Prayer is to pray that this will become a reality on earth as well. And so many Jews of the time would believe that though God would look after them after their death, um, of course he would, because he promised to do that, um, that there would come a new time within the world of space, time, and matter, within real uh, the, the reality of this world, in which um, God would renew everything and raise his people from the dead, and that would be the kingdom of God. And when you look at the Old Testament, um, the book of Isaiah, the Psalms, the book of Daniel, which is very prominent here, the idea of God becoming king is never about um, uh, leaving this world and going to a place called heaven. It's always about 
something dramatic happening to turn things around within this world. And that is certainly what the earliest Christians believed. Um, so that though, of course, there are many opinions in first century Judaism, we can never say all Jews believed X, right. um, because there are always differences of opinion. But when you're talking about the kingdom of God, you're retrieving those biblical texts in particular, which are about the great turnaround within the present world. And this is something that modern Christians, modern Western Christians, find it very difficult to get their heads around because we've been drilled uh, with so much Plato since the 18th and 19th century, which has been actually a way of keeping the church, a way of the politicians keeping the church off the patch. Uh, there you are. You go and believe in heaven, and we'll run the world. Right. The early Christians would have said, "Truly, Jesus runs the world." Thank you very much. And and but but he doesn't do it in the same way as Caesar does. That's that's the crucial thing. That the kingdom of God, as revealed in Jesus, is about a different kind of power, a different way of doing power. And we see the early church wrestling with precisely that in a book like Second Corinthians, for instance. Well, would um, I mean it's there's a whole stream of. Uh, New Testament scholarship that would say Jesus came uh, promising the kingdom, and all we ended up with was this church. Um, that in yeah, fact yeah, yeah. he he failed. Uh, he he was he mis he was he misled people, or he himself was uh, wrong about his own uh, power yeah, and expectations. That, that's that's been yeah that's been a very frequent thing that people have said over this last century or so, and I think it it goes back to various people like Tyrrell and Razi uh, about a century back. Um, but that mistakes the whole thing that Jesus is constantly talking about. I mean, in the Sermon on the Mount, for instance, um, when he's talking about blessed are the peacemakers and the hungry for justice people and the mourners and, and the, uh, the, the, the pure in heart and so on, he's not saying, if you are this kind of person, God will love you. He's saying, these are the kinds of people through whom God is bringing his kingdom in the world. And so uh, the people who think that Jesus was predicting a sudden big bang and everything would be different overnight, or maybe the end of the world and a sort of a totally supernatural world starting thereafter, that, that's a modern misunderstanding. Um, uh, you see, the, 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 the way the message that Jesus was proclaiming is that the way God wants to challenge and change the world is through what we see in Jesus himself, a kind of dramatically humble, rescuing servant ministry. Um, so that uh, Jesus' followers, ever since his death and resurrection and ascension, uh, went out in the power of the Spirit into the world and started living differently and started after the poor and started doing education for all, despite the fact that most people in those days were probably illiterate or semi-literate. Mm -hmm. They started doing medicine for all because Jesus was into healing and they wanted to make healing available to all. Um, and by the time the bullies and the bad guys and the power brokers had woken up, you know, the meek and the hungry and the uh, would-be justice people and the um, uh, peacemakers had been building schools and orphanages and were going around changing the world. And the world has gone on being changed ever since. As many historians have said, actually, when you look at the ancient Roman world and then see, granted, Christianity made a lot of mistakes. Of course, uh, it, it isn't perfect, anything like. But... The, the the world has been changed by the gospel and goes on being changed. Um, and kind of this stuff works, but it doesn't work in the way that either Caesar at the time or the journalists in our own time would necessarily like to see. Yeah, this is, this raises a, a big split uh, in the in the uh, thought of modern men and women. You were, you started out as a, a classical historian or a Roman historian, is that right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So so. Uh, it, Today we assume the that 
all human beings. I mean, it's it's whether you're talking about the United Nations or other uh, NGOs uh, that are out doing yep. work like Amnesty International. It's assumed that um, there's something called uh, universal human rights and that uh, all people are to be uh, respected or respected before the law anyways. When we come back on the other side of the break, I want you to really help us understand how radically different that was, that that early Christian proclamation that Jesus had died for all, uh, how that was something that was entirely unfamiliar to uh, Jews, Romans, and Greeks. My guest, Dr. N.T. Wright, looking at the New Testament in its world. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. N.T. Wright. He and uh, uh, Michael Bird have uh, put together an outstanding introduction to the history, literature, and theology of the first Christians. It's called The New Testament in Its World. And in our world, we take for granted the idea that uh, people are equal before the law, um, and we try to maintain universal human dignity. Uh, this is this a is this part of what the Christian Church has given us over the years? Is this what Jesus or, or was there a universal acceptance of one another prior to the incarnation? No, there really wasn't. And if you look at the ancient Roman society, I mean, the, the Roman Empire tried to have a kind of measure of equality, that all citizens were equal under the law, but that's all citizens. And if you weren't a Roman citizen, then you would decidedly not be right. equal. Um, but they were trying to do, they, had a, they did have a kind of quasi-universal vision in that they were running an empire that stretched from Spain to Syria and beyond, um, which you know, nobody had done quite that before. Okay, there was Genghis Khan and Alexander the Great, but the Romans really were trying to do a kind of a smoothing out operation but it manifestly didn't work and you still had total sharp distinction between males and females and between of course slaves and free mm-hmm. so that the roman society was very much still a hierarchical society and the jewish world was much more egalitarian though there too there were quite sharp distinctions and the different parties and sects within judaism at the time were were kind of reinforcing some of that But then what you get from the very start with the early Christians, one of Paul's earliest letters, Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Um, You're all one in Messiah Jesus. That's an extraordinary statement. And people have often hailed it as revolutionary. And in a sense, the church is still struggling to come to terms with it, which is, is, you know, perhaps to be expected. But then uh, as the historian Tom Holland in his recent book, Dominion, has, has pointed out, when you look at the Roman world. Um, You see all kinds of things, which the early Christians, they didn't necessarily challenge head on, but they just went about doing it differently and subverting expectations and and trying to treat people equally. And I mean, in the third and fourth century, the Roman officials didn't know very much about what Christianity was, but they knew that they had these people who were called bishops and that the bishops were always banging on about the plight of the poor. Um, (laughs) I've often said to people, wouldn't it be nice if that was the thing that our bishops were famous for today? Um, and and uh, that was that was how the church was rightly perceived as people trying to do this human project differently. Now, of course, 
in our own day with people like Stephen Pinker from Harvard saying, oh, we must forget all this religion because actually all we need is the Enlightenment and we just have to go forward with that. That is manifest nonsense. And it's nonsense even in America where you'd think if it was going to work, it would work there. Um, that it, the, the, the great Enlightenment project, as the postmodernists have pointed out for the last 50 years, has let us down big time. Right. Um, it's out of the Enlightenment philosophies of Hegel and Kant and people that we have, well, the French Revolution, but then particularly um, the, the great totalitarians of the 20th century and the, the Holocaust and the Gulag and so on. These are basically Enlightenment projects, I'm sorry to say. And uh, uh, that's why we're a very confused Western world at the moment, that we've, we've only got certain moral standards left, e.g. we don't like Adolf Hitler and anyone who reminds us of him. But that's not a very good way to navigate reality. Um, and what the church had to offer in the first century and still has to offer. And we see this, I mean, back to the, the the title of the book, the New Testament, in its world. The more you understand its world, the more you understand how revolutionary the message in the New Testament really was and still is. And that, that to me, is really exciting. It is. And uh, this, this, Afro, you know, this attempt to cling to the Enlightenment project, even though, uh, again, as you point out, for 50 years, uh, postmodern yeah. thinkers have been saying it's a failed project, uh, continues yeah, yeah, yeah. To, they continue to push on. Um, I mean, we celebrated in the United States the uh, it was federal holiday of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Oh yes, and uh, yes. that was yesterday. And <laughs> what's what's uh, I can remember uh, th- th- when I was a lot younger, uh, him being talked about as this great civil rights leader. And uh, at one of his um, one of the uh, memorial services for him, uh, it was taking place. Yeah. I don't recall the name of the church now, but uh, the reporter standing in front of the church said, "We're here at the memorial service of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr." Uh, at this church, and it's appropriate it would be in a church because his father was a Christian pastor. <laughs> Comple- completely missing that at the core of King's... Uh, King King wasn't... Wow. He was unlike wow. the other... He was not an Enlightenment yeah. thinker. He was act, no, acting no, no, no. out of a no. Christian understanding of power. <laughs> and and he, was, he was a good old black preacher who knew the prophets. He knew Amos, <laughs> he knew Isaiah, right. and would often quote them. I mean, uh, I don't know nearly as much about Martin Luther King as you Americans do, but all that I do know, um, yeah, he was in that great Christian preaching tradition. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, it's one of the legacies of that whole tradition, which comes through the civil rights movement into the mainstream, thank God, that you don't regard the prophets as simply um, people who are ranting on, you know, eight centuries before Jesus, but you regard them as people who are predicting a new way of being human, which then Jesus himself brings to birth. Yes. And, you know, we needed to hear that. That's, but I hadn't heard that story. That's extraordinary. Oh, a que- is, it a, is it a good question? Is a good question to ask, what would the world look like if God was running it? <laughs> yes, yes. That's that's actually a question I've often asked when I was Bishop of Durham. I, it was it was the way I used to introduce um, various events. Uh, would, would get local churches in one particular area to say, you know, what would Durham look like if God was in charge? What yeah. would Newcastle look like if God was in charge, etc.? And some people look rather sort of surprised and say, well, um, I suppose 
um, we'd have better coffee or <laughs> something <laughs> like that. Or, or maybe the trains would run on time. Or, but then they'd get serious and they'd say, well, would there be any sick people? Would there be any criminals anymore? Um, and then when you look at the Gospels and you see Jesus saying, I'll show you what it looks like when God's in charge. And it doesn't mean that there's a big bang and the whole world stops. It means that people get healed. It means that people are having a party because God is doing a new thing. It means that people understand that uh, the, the God who made the world is a God of infinite love, who is loving them and forgiving them and healing them and bringing about new life. And these are signs of the kingdom. And then after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, of course, the message of the ascension, though many churches forget this, is that Jesus is now the Lord of the world. And people say, oh, well, he can't be, because if you look out of the window, it's obvious that he isn't in charge, because there's still bad things right. going on. But that misses the point, misses the point of the Sermon on the Mount. It's not that no bad things will go on in the meantime. It's that God is doing this new work, small and local, but very, very powerful, working from within and working through humble service and through signs of hope. And these are anticipations of the great new day, which is still to come. It isn't that we've already got everything that there ever will be, far from it. But there are, these are genuine advance signs of what it looks like already now that Jesus has taken charge and is involved in, in, in leading this project. Yes. And that's what the church is all about, being the people who are taking that project forward in the power of Jesus' spirit. Uh, my, my friend, Father John Ricardo, likes to say, God wants his world back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and I would say, and he's taken it back in and through uh, Jesus' death and resurrection right. and the gift of the Spirit. And See, the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles, and one of the things which I think we bring out in this book, um, New Testament in its World, I think it, it's so important, the beginning of the Acts, when the disciples say to Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says, well, it won't be quite like that, but here's your job. He's not saying, oh, no, no, we're not going to restore the kingdom to Israel. He's going to say, well, yes, that is happening, but it doesn't look like you thought it would. It won't look like a military takeover right. by a, a renewed Israel under a warrior messiah. It'll look like you going out the same way that I went out. The Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head and was despised and rejected, but look what he did. And the church had nowhere to lay its head and was despised and rejected and stoned and beaten up and so on. And within a generation, um, there's Paul in Rome announcing that God is King and Jesus is Lord under Caesar's nose, openly and unhindered. Mm -hmm. And within another generation, the Roman governor in northern Turkey is writing anxious letters to the emperor in Rome to say, hey, we've got a lot of these Christians around. What am I supposed to do with them? Um, so, you know, despite everything, this is how it spreads. Let me ask you a, a question that's more philosophical, but I think people sense it, even if they don't articulate it. There's this big gap, this gulf between um, yeah. our lived experience in the world, our existential awareness of what's today, and yeah. the affirmation of certain historical propositions, right? Um, Jesus yeah. died uh, in the first century. Uh, he was yeah. buried, and he was risen. Uh, how, do, how do statements about the past— uh, how are we supposed to understand that they are relevant for us today? There seems to be this huge gulf. Yeah, there is. And many people in the modern church have tried to get across that gulf by saying, well, of course, Jesus was the second person of the Trinity. He was divine or whatever. Therefore, whatever he did 
and said and whatever happened to him kind of matters because it's God's story as well. And, and I would say that's true, but that doesn't get to the heart of it. The whole of the Old Testament, which so many Christians find so difficult, is predicated on the assumption that God has chosen this people, the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to be the means by which he is going to restore the world, to put the world right, so that when we see the history of that people coming to its climax, which is what all four Gospels are saying happened in Jesus, um, then th- this means that the, the long-drawn-out secret divine purpose for addressing and healing the world has now been accomplished. Um, mm. And that it's it's only really when you realize that that's how the Old Testament works, and that's how the New Testament works in relation to it, that you then see that's why it's relevant. And so in a sense, to believe is to believe, uh, to believe the Christian gospel is to believe that that whole preparatory story is kind of retrospectively validated through the events concerning Jesus. Um, and uh, uh, so um, th- this takes this takes time. I mean, not everyone, as it were, comes in by that route, and some people become Christians without ever hearing about the Old sure, Testament, sure. but they pretty soon need to know about it. Otherwise, they won't understand what family they've joined, if you like, that this is the family that goes back to Abraham, and that the Abraham purpose always was to sort out the mess and muddle of the world. <laughs> That's good. Hold it there if you would, Dr. Wright. We'll come back on just the other side of the break. Yeah. My guest, Dr. N.T. Wright, uh, he is uh, author most recently of The New Testament in Its World, uh, which he wrote with uh, Michael Byrd. We'll, in fact, on the other side of the break, we'll talk a little bit about how that book came into existence. It is, I think, uh, without question, uh, the best introduction to the New Testament that's out there. I'm Al Cresta. We'll be right back. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Dr. N.T. Wright. He and Michael Byrd have uh, given us the New Testament in its world, an introduction to the history, literature, and theology of first Christians. It's, um, well, it's a, it's a big book. It's uh, over 900 pages. And it is uh, it has a wonderful uh, style. It doesn't read like an academic treatise at all. Uh, <laughs> I noticed, though, in the part, the headings here, that uh, titles of some of your books— <laughs> Jesus and the victory of God, the resurrection of the Son of God, fall and the faithfulness of God. How how did you guys go about writing this? This is huge. Well, um, it was Michael Bird's idea. I blame him for it. <laughs> he's, a, <laughs> he's a very li- lively young Australian scholar, and I've known Mike for, for, for some time. He's a great chap. And uh, he is teaching undergraduates and, and seminarians all the time in a way that I used to do but haven't done for a while. Most of my recent teaching has been PhD students. And Mike was very much aware that he was wanting to try to communicate to his students um, many of the things which I have set out in my longer and more academic works, but he couldn't expect his students to read every page of my big fat books because there's been several of them, etc. So he he said to the publishers several years ago, five, six, seven years ago, wouldn't it be great if somebody could boil down Tom Wright's larger books into one single volume 
student handbook which would cover everything that needed to be covered but in a very user-friendly way and the publishers said um we'll just have a word with tom about it but we think yes it's a good idea and you should do it <laughs> so and i i heartily agreed with that so mike basically set to work and read pretty well everything i've ever written i think and and turned it into this single um strand and then he sent it to me and we went to and fro and to and fro on email for about a year saying now maybe this section should come with here and maybe i need to rewrite that bit and could we say this instead of that and so on as you'd expect with a joint sure. author book um but it was it, that was mostly great fun there was quite a lot of hard slog as well where because he's an australian and i'm british and so a lot of his sentences i thought heaven somebody's going to quote that and ascribe it to me and i'm not an australian <laughs> <laughs> um, so i i I, I'm afraid I toned down some of his um, splendid one-liners just a little bit, um, but uh, we we left. And but his task as well was to add in all the charts and maps and diagrams and timelines and all that stuff, and lots and lots of pictures and artworks, which really make the book go. You know, I when I open the book almost at random anywhere, there is all this interesting stuff which jumps off the page. Yeah, and my hope is that the average student will just be wooed into it and will just enjoy the. Enjoy the ride. Oh, I, I'm sure that's going to happen. It's a, it's a magnificent <laughs> book. Um, Good, thank you. Uh, let me raise a question that it hasn't been it hasn't been talked about very much recently. But uh, in the '90s, there was all this hubbub about the Jesus Seminar and oh, yeah. this quest for the historical Jesus. And there's a long, uh, you know, academic tradition about the quest for the historical Jesus. I think. Uh, most people who are not familiar with the academic debate wonder, well, why? what do you mean by that? I mean, are you saying that maybe Jesus didn't exist in history? What is that? What is this well, quest for the historical Jesus about? Yeah, in every generation, there are one or two mavericks who suggest that Jesus didn't exist. And, and sometimes I get told off for saying this, but I really do think that discussing whether Jesus existed or not is like inviting an astronomer to discuss whether the moon really is made of green you know, <laughs> actually guys we, we we know it ain't it ain't like that right. um that, right. that uh, we just we we know that jesus of nazareth existed as surely as we know that julius caesar existed and for similar reasons that there are good literary sources and particularly as with many things in history because of the effects that um there were many Jewish leaders, would-be messiahs, prophetic figures, etc. in the first century. We know about them through the historian Josephus, and we have no reason to suppose he's making all them up. And in the middle of it, here is this figure who really does seem to have changed history in, in all sorts of ways, that there is this radical new movement which is launched within the first century. And it's one of the frustrations, by the way, in square brackets, as a classicist originally myself, that uh, the, the, the university and schools departments that teach classics, they really ought to teach Jesus and the rise of Christianity as a subject within that, because it does belong in the classical that's, world. And that's good. The fact that they don't usually do that, and they skip over, you know, they, they may discuss Cicero or Seneca. Right. Well, Cicero lived 50 before Jesus, Seneca lived a bit after Jesus, and they their ideas are amazing and and brilliant and so on. But right in between them stand these people called Jesus and Paul, who actually have been more influential in terms of world history. Why don't we study them in their right. context as well? Right. So, um, so in terms of the Jesus seminar, so-called, that was a movement within one small section of kind of radical American uh, scholarly groups 
most of whom were fed up with fundamentalism, either Catholic or Protestant fundamentalism. They were mostly recovering fundamentalists. Um, and so they were determined. Uh, and you have to remember, they were coming out of the Reagan years where people um, on the right, just as happens now, sadly, were saying, um, oh, you know, Jesus is our hero. He supports our right wing agendas. And they were saying, absolutely not. Um, this won't do, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, so th there was a lot of political spin going on um, and also some fairly shabby scholarship. I mean, if you think back to the great American scholars of the time, people like Ed Sanders and Jim Charlesworth and John Paul Meyer and others, um, none of them joined in the Jesus Seminar. Right. The, the only real substantial figures who did were Dominic Cross and Walter Wink and Marcus Borg. And Walter and Marcus were kind of, uh, would have been seen as on the right wing of the Jesus Seminar. And they were just questing interesting, hungry individuals. Um, but most of, the, most of the members are, are not people of any great scholarly substance. Um, except, I say, Tom Crossan, a man I really respect, and I understand where he's coming from. Um, and, and he and I, I'm happy to say, are still um, good friends in a funny sort of way. Um, but I think the project as a whole was radically ill-conceived, which is why it, it gains no mileage now. I mean, isn't, isn't that issue, uh, so-called quest for the historical Jesus, uh, just a question about uh, how what one can understand through historical research? Well, yes, it, it all depends, of course, what you mean by historical research. Right. Um, <laughs> and I've, I have another new book out, my Gifford Lectures, called History and Eschatology, and I have a whole quite long chapter in there on basically what is history, um, where I've tried to nail a lot of the relevant questions, because it's one of those... People think they know what history is. It's rather like Augustine says about time. We all think we know what time is <laughs> right. until somebody asks you to, to describe what it is. And, you know, history is both what happened and what people write about what happened right. and how people research what happened. And, and what happened itself is a mixture of actual visible events and human motivations. And human motivations constitute a very important part of history. But you, but they, you can't see them on the video camera. Um, but unless you say, you know, why did this happen? Because people wanted to do X, Y, and Z, then you're not really doing history. Um, so uh, it, it is always complicated. But historical research then has to say, so what do we really know about Jesus? And we really know about Jesus that he went around saying, it's time for God to become king in the way that Israel's scriptures had always foretold. And it's perfectly possible to say as historians, what people in his day would have thought that meant, namely some revolutionary agenda for getting rid of the Romans or something like that. And then it's perfectly possible to say, well, Jesus seems to have gone around redefining it. He kept saying, this is what the kingdom of God is like, and that's what the parables are doing. That's what his healings are doing. That's what his feastings with sinners uh, is doing. And um, the, the, these events and speeches and actions are all ways of taking the existing notion of kingdom of God, which as his historians we can get to quite easily we can see what people were expecting and then saying jesus is saying yes to the expectation but radically revising the way in which that expectation comes about yeah. and it really looks as though historically jesus believed it was his vocation to go to be crucified uh, in order to bring this about. Now, that gets you into some very dark waters indeed, as you'd expect, um, as the Church has always recognized. But then, if you believe, even for a split second, that there is such a thing as a dark power of evil, and that there is a good God who desires to overthrow that dark power, we should expect 
um, this to be a dark theme in itself. And that is indeed what we find. But there are ways through. So in all those ways, I'm, I'm basically everything I've said is, is doing history is saying, let's look at Jesus himself as his historical context, what it meant at the time, and how his own reading of Israel's scriptures contributed dramatically to his sense of vocation as to why he had to go to the cross and what Israel's God was going to do next as a result. Well, in fact, let's, let's stay with that a bit. Why did Jesus die? <laughs> uh, I once asked a Sunday school <laughs> class that exact question, and, and I made them write down the answers with no conferring, and it was very interesting. Half the class wrote, oh, he died because the Pharisees didn't like him. He died because the Romans were frightened of him. He died, you know, why, why, why? Because these people wanted him dead. And the other half wrote, he died to save us from our sins. He died so that we could go to heaven. He died to make us good. And, so, and, and we spent a very interesting hour putting those two sets of answers together. Because in the New Testament, they, in the New Testament, they come together. Um, it, it isn't an either-or. And when the Gospels are talking about the actual historical processes by which Jesus went to his death, what we see going on, and I think Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John all intend this, is uh, it's as though the forces of evil are gathering themselves together and doing their worst at this very point. You know, you see shrieking benighted souls in the synagogue. You see plotting Pharisees. You see angry Herodians. You see even some of Jesus' own disciples misunderstanding him and then ultimately one of them betraying him. Um, and you see the chief priests being jealous of him and Pilate being a typical muddled Roman governor. And it's as though all the forces of evil in the world are getting together, and what they do is they crucify this man. And he takes all that evil represented by them, and he takes it upon himself so that the rest of his people don't need to bear it. And, and thereby, the New Testament says he wins the victory. Somehow he has defeated the powers of evil. And the reason we know that is that he rose from the dead, um, because if he hadn't defeated the power of evil, then he would have stayed dead. So the resurrection is seen from very early on as the sign that his death was a victory mm. and that it was a victory gained by him taking upon himself the evil that was otherwise going to fall on everyone else, if you like. So it's a victory through substitution. And the, the four Gospels say that in their own ways. Paul says it in his own way. Um, and that's right through the New Testament. Um I want to thank you so much, Dr. Wright, for being with me. We're uh, to the end of our time You're today. You're very welcome. It's good to talk to you. Yes, uh, I greatly enjoy uh, what your work has done. It's been a major influence in uh, my thinking about the work of Christ. Oh, thank and you. Thank you. So uh, we'll talk again sometime, I hope. Yes, indeed. I very much hope so. Thank you very much indeed. Goodbye. Dr. N.T. Wright uh, with Michael Bird has given us the New Testament in its world, an introduction to the history, literature, and theology of the first Christians. I think I own probably all the major introductions uh, to the New Testament. And uh, I can say, well, there are many of them that are very good, by the way. Uh, this one is different. It's different in that it actually not only introduces us to some of the basic questions, but it also does the theology for us. <laughs> 